Servers in a data center fail sometimes. Sometimes the entire data center has a power outage. Bugs in an application can make it into production. Human operators make mistakes and cause data to be deleted. Failure is unavoidable. We make backups and replicate our servers so that when a failure occurs, we can quickly respond to it without making the user feel much pain. But how can we test that our response will work before an actual catastrophe occurs? Colton Andres is CEO of Gremlin, a company that works on failure injection as a service. Gremlin is based on ideas around planned failure that Colton learned from his years at Amazon and Netflix. We ended up talking as much about the culture of Netflix and Amazon as we did about how and why to build failure injection. It's always nice to share war stories with other people who have worked at Amazon because the culture is so distinct. If you want to know more about Amazon's culture, check out the episode tomorrow with Brad Stone, author of The Everything Store. Colton Andrus is the founder and CEO of Gremlin. Colton, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. My pleasure to be here. I, I appreciate the opportunity. And I appreciate you coming on. Netflix originally built a system called Chaos Monkey to make their software fail randomly. Why would we want to inject random failures into our software? So that's, that's a great question. We should almost break that into two parts. Why do we want to inject failures and why do we want to inject failures randomly? If you want to talk about the random bit, you know, I think the, the value of random failure injection is, is that it forces you to be prepared. Similar to an outage that could occur at any time, if you're randomly causing yourself pain, you, you know, it could happen at any point and you need to be prepared. So what are the kinds of random failures that we might want to inject in our software systems? So Chaos Monkey is best known for rebooting hosts. It's a nice small level of granularity. You're moving to the cloud. You can't trust that your instances will be there. And so by forcing those to randomly terminate, you're forced to handle the natural state of a cloud deployment, uh, a cloud deployed application. And one of the side effects of that is that it tends to make your services stateless because you can't rely on storing state on the box because it could go away at any point. You have to move that state elsewhere. And this is uh, almost reminds me of the fact that, you know, early days of cloud systems there. Well, I guess this is still true is servers fail all the time. They get replaced. And so that's what's happening at the hardware level. So you're simulating that at the infrastructure as code level by just making these servers fail and restarting them. Yeah, and I think additionally, you know, as as your as your service matures, you tend to do things like auto scaling where you're going to add and remove instances, you know, in accordance with your traffic or your your influx of of requests you need to serve. And so for that reason, even on a happy case, servers can be coming and going throughout the day. How did this random failure injection, maybe we're just talking about the servers restarting, how did that kind of failure injection influence the Netflix software development culture? Yeah, so I think, you know, one thing that's great about the Netflix culture is that when they made this decision that everyone had to participate, that they were going to break things on a regular basis, you know, it became everyone's problem. This is something that, you know, we could argue engineers need to address and be ready for anyway, but by making it, you know, uh, an important part of the engineering process, 
you know, it becomes a first class citizen. It says, hey, we care a lot about resilience and ensuring that our software handles failures correctly. And you need to be ready to handle that. What are some of the more sophisticated types of failure injection that we might add to our system? Ah, so there's there's the good question. I I honestly think rebooting a host is like your bare minimum. Um, it, it is it is the the basic attack that you can cause. More interesting failures, you know. So we we have focused on a set of of a handful of key failures up front. Things like let's max out CPU, let's take up a bunch of memory, force a garbage collection, let's consume all the bandwidth to our disks and see what happens when we get stalled waiting for I/O. That, that's an interesting class that I call those resource attacks. I think those teach you interesting bits about your system. I think the most valuable class of attacks are the network attacks. You know, we're all moving to distributed systems, microservice architectures. We're making a lot of network calls and the network is fundamentally unreliable. And so in that case, being able to simulate or emulate failures like in, you know, a dependency of your slows down. It usually responds in 100 milliseconds, but now we're going to make it respond in a second and a half. How do we handle that? What if that dependency just goes away? You know, we want to black hole all traffic to a dependency and see how our service handles it. Can we gracefully degrade? Can we continue serving critical traffic or are we done? Are we going to fall on our faces? You know, and then there's, there's other variations of network traffic, packet loss or corruption or other things that you can inject. Can you clarify why the network level is being classified here as more unreliable than other levels? Because we have all of these layers to a typical architecture these days. You know, you've got the host level, you've got the container level, you've got the container orchestration level, you've got the cloud service provider level. Uh, I realize I'm mixing what I'm referring to as a level, but why the focus on the network? I think that's just, I don't know, maybe that's a, a traditional approach. You know, if you had a data center, if you had a lot of hardware, if you had a lot of redundancy, you still have to communicate across the internet to other people, to other dependencies. You know, that's the glory of the internet. You can talk to anybody. But when you go out across a public network, you're no longer in control. And so, and so we can kind of discuss or debate, you know, if you're on a cloud provider, you know, the degree of reliability of the network is going to be somewhat influenced by them. But, you know, weakest leak principle, we're going to hit a point where we're, we're going out across the, the open internet and anything could happen. If a company decides they're going to start implementing this failure injection and they start instituting these failures, how can they know whether something has broken as a result of a failure injection or because of something organic? That's kind of comes back to this point about should you randomly fail your test or should you do it more explicitly? I'm actually a fan, especially in the beginning, of purposefully causing failure, scheduling it, planning out an exercise, thinking of it like an experiment that you're going to run where you're going to learn something about the system. And you're going to cause the failure, but you're also going to know what failure you caused. So you could revert it or clean it up. You don't have to root cause it if things go wrong. And if you set up a test and exercise like this, then you know when it started, you know when it ended, you know what you think should happen. And like any good experiment, you should have a hypothesis of how you think that failure will impact your system. I think it's important to have things like success criteria. What does, what do we, you know, what, when things go well, what do we expect this failure to behave like? 
you know, and most of the time that's we don't expect it to impact customers or, you know, we're going to gracefully degrade and continue on business as normal. And so and then a set of abort conditions, you know, hey, if we're ever impacting customers, if we're running this failure test and we've ever caused an impact beyond what we intended, we're going to halt it. We're going to clean it up. We're going to revert it. So I think that kind of a, an experiment driven approach lets you let you know when and where so that you can be looking for the how and the why. If I hear you correctly, during a failure injection, if a failure occurs, well, a failure will occur, you may not know if in that time window that failure is an organic failure or an injected failure, but it really doesn't matter. All that matters is that in this time window, you're looking at failures that occur, you're correlating them with other things that are going on, and you're looking for solutions to those correlated failures. That's a good clarifying question. I guess I would say if another failure occurs during your exercise, then, you know, as part of your understanding of that experiment, you're going to you're going to realize that that wasn't from the failure that you injected. And so that's still a great opportunity to learn and to adapt to that failure. It might even be a reason to stop your other failure exercise because something else is going on, you know, two variables at once changing kind of a situation. At Etsy, they do these game day exercises. I know this isn't unique to Etsy. In a game day exercise, they prepare for the failure they will induce, and then they induce it. Is this the strategy that you're suggesting? Yeah. I'm a big fan of the game day, uh, or the uh, Dropbox calls it a DIRT, a disaster recovery testing exercise. But this this planned out, thoughtful exercise where you're going to cause a failure, you're going to train, and it has a side effect. It's It's more than just being able to learn about your software. When you run a game day, you have an opportunity to train your team, to help them to prepare for real outages, but to do it during business hours, you know, when the caffeine's kicked in instead of at two in the morning when the pager goes off. It seems like at a company as big as Netflix or Amazon or Uber, there are so many naturally occurring failures that they wouldn't need to inject even more. Why is that not the case? So that that's going to be based upon the type of failures you're seeing. There might be enough random hosts going down or um, you know, network blips that that cause you to feel that pain and address it. But you know, when it comes to how do you handle one of your dependencies getting slow or one of your dependencies failing, those types of things may not be happening regularly. But when they do happen, you want to prevent that outage. You know, if we're talking of moving to, you know, three nines and four nines kind of territory, you don't have a lot of time to, to, to be down. And, you know, a good part of every incident involves just getting everyone involved, looking at the problem, diagnosing it, and, and then mitigating it. And so if you've proactively gone out and tested that you can lose one of your dependencies and that business will go on as normal, you've not only mitigated the, the actual impact, but you've mitigated the time it takes to figure it out and to resolve it. I recently was listening to a software engineering radio episode that's a different podcast with the uh, John Alspaugh from Etsy, and he was talking about this game day, this failure injection, and he was encouraging people to do it in production. Why should you do failure injection in production? 
another another great question. I'm a fan of John's, and I think he's correct here as well. Production's what matters. Production's what serves your customer traffic. So if you've tuned and you've tested things in staging, that may not apply in production. You know, think of things like your timeouts, your cues, you know, the amount of throttling you're going to do, those interactions between services. You know, in the happy case or in, in a test or stage environment where you don't have full production traffic, you're just not going to be able to prepare for the scale that that failure may happen. And, you know, the happy case tuning just may not save you. It may not protect you well enough when you're doing a production incident. Um, there's another quote I love. It's by uh, James Hamilton, who's a distinguished uh, AWS engineer. He came from Microsoft Research. He wrote a paper that I kind of consider the one of my ops Bible papers uh, on designing and deploying internet scale systems. But in there, he essentially said that those unwilling to test in production aren't confident that their service will continue operating through failures. And if untested, the recovery mechanisms won't work when called upon. And I think that second bit is also important. Like we, we build these mitigations. So Netflix is the ability to fail out of regions. But if you haven't tested that you can fail out of a region on the fly in production in a short period of time during an incident, then you may exasperate or lengthen the incident or that tool just may provide no value to you in protecting you. You have a lot of these quotes around failure and chaos on the gremlininc.com website. Some of those are from Nassim Nicholas Taleb, for example, and I think you just mentioned another. What are your favorite quotes about failure and crisis drills? Yeah, so I love I love that James Hamilton quote. Um, I love Nicholas Nassim Taleb's anti-fragile view of the world. Um, one of my favorite analogies to draw is that of the vaccine. So, so when we think of something being fragile, we think of it breaking or not handling change well. Typically, we think of anti or we think of the opposite of that as robust or resilient, things that just handle change well. But anti-fragile kind of proposes we want something better than that. We want a system that doesn't just go back to being normal. We want a system that actually improves in the face of failure. And this translates well to organisms, to people, to ecosystems, to societies, things that adapt and grow stronger. The vaccine analogy, you know, while counterintuitive, fits that same bill. We're going to inject ourselves with something harmful in order to build an immunity. I think that translates very well into the distributed systems world. We're going to go inject some harmful behaviors into our system to build immunities to them so that when they occur, they're, they're non-events. You're building failure injection as a service. Why does that need to exist? Why don't people just import the library? This is There's an open source set of libraries around failure injection that Netflix has. Why build failure injection as a service? Yeah, so the crux there, it's not that hard to break stuff. Uh, I actually think it is hard. There's some subtlety to breaking things precisely as you want. But there's more to it than just that. You know, if you're just going to go out and start breaking things, uh, you know, that might be a place to start, but you're not going to learn as much as if you do it purposefully. If you want to run failure injection in production, for example, you want to make sure that it's safe to run. 
that you know if something goes wrong, you're able to revert that impact or clean it up. You want to ensure that it's secure. If you're building a system that could potentially break everything, obviously that would be you know that would be a huge target if somebody wanted to come cause you problems. You want things like you know auditing and a history. You want uh, I'm I'm a big believer that good developer tools make it easy for people to do the right things, and so you want a, a simple UI that guides people through it, helps them understand what's going to happen. You want a control plane that ensures that if your service breaks or if anything unexpected happens, you stop the attack and you clean it up. And so you know I think I think of Chaos Monkey and I think some of these open source tools they're that that bottom-most building block, they can break some things. A lot of those haven't even thought, how do they revert the impact or clean themselves up? But then when you start layering in all of these other aspects that you want in a service, you can see where it, it's more than just an open source project you plug in. It's curious how these different SaaS tools, many of them start off looking like things that are just small features that you want as part of your cloud provider, you know, I think of continuous integration tools, for example, people have built entire businesses around continuous integration tools. In the early days of continuous integration, we might have thought, oh, this is just something that AWS will bolt on, but it turns out to be such a rich uh, ecosystem. Uh, there's a rich variety of things that people want out of a continuous integration tool. Why is that the case with failure injection? Why is this a rich enough problem that it is worth breaking off into an entire company rather than uh, this is going to be something that's a bolt-on AWS or Google Cloud? Yeah, so I've thought a, a bit about that. You know, I think on one hand, you know, do cl cloud providers already fail more than they want to? I don't know if they want to be culpable for purposely causing failures, for breaking things. There might be kind of a third-party audit role at play there. Um, but I think in general, this because this is a new space, you know, perhaps down the road that, that will make sense for them. Perhaps it'll just be core to the way we develop software in, in 10 or 15 years. But in the interim, not, not very many people are doing this. You know, it's tricky. You do want to get it right. The cost of being wrong can be high. And so there's a lot of value in getting help and expertise in this journey. I was at this Redpoint event recently. You might have been there too. I don't know if you were, but it was called the Journey to Cloud Native. And there was a panel of people, including uh, Craig from Kubernetes, or now he's working on uh, Heptio, I think. Uh, but they were talking about what what cloud services can be built that will not be subsumed by a cloud provider uh and we're talking about you know a number of things but you know kind of the struggles of building a business that is separate from a cloud provider and also you know does it have to be open source what parts of it are open source what are the pricing models what are the sales models what are these big questions that you are asking yourself as you're building the foundation for this SaaS business that's, as far as I know, I think it's based on the open source tools. Right. So actually, we're, we're not based on any open source. Um, we've okay. had this debate right. a few times. Gremlin has been built from the ground up. Um, we're not reusing Netflix's pieces. In fact, I, I would argue we're doing it a little bit better for some of the reasons I, I stated earlier. Um, we have a, a Linux compiled binary that causes the bad behavior that runs on any any Linux distribution. 
and then a service and a website and the SaaS offering that ties together. We, we've debated whether we want to open source the client and at what point that makes sense. The, the difficulty for a young company where you'd like to be around in a couple of years means you need to make some money and be profitable. And if we give away, you know, one of the core components of our business up front, it's kind of a one way decision. Um, so, so on that point, we've debated that. We think that perhaps down the road, we may open source our client, but but we're waiting to see when and if that's the right decision. Can you talk about some of the differences between the open source tools such as Chaos Monkey and the work that you've done internally at Gremlin? Yeah, so I think Chaos Monkey is most known for randomly rebooting hosts. There's a few other of the Simeon army, Kong and Gorilla, that allow you to simulate you know, zone and region failures. And then there's a whole other host of monkeys that I don't think a lot of people know about. There's latency monkey. There's some other monkeys in there that muck with network traffic or do other things. What we've built is, you know, we've tried to build the superset of failures that we think are interesting. So as I outlined earlier, a set of resource gremlins, a set of network gremlins, a set of reboot gremlins. You know, right after the S3 outage, we made sure that we could, we could properly emulate not being able to talk to S3, have that built in as a as a building block in our system. You know, we were confident after the DNS outage last fall, we went and wrote a DNS gremlin. How does your system behave when you can't access DNS or resolve certain host names? And so, so that's so there's kind of the breadth wise in the number of attacks, and that library is going to grow over time as we find things that are valuable for our customers to inject. And then I think depth-wise, you know, we talked a little bit about, you know, some of the Chaos Monkey scripts, not maybe not Chaos Monkey itself, but some of the other monkeys are kind of one-liners. You know, they break something, they do something bad. But in my opinion, and respectfully, because, you know, they laid some great groundwork here, they're kind of naive solutions. They, they haven't been thought through real deep in not just how to cause the failure, but how to revert the failure. So one of the things that we think is very important is that all of the gremlin attacks are reversible. And in fact, if anything goes wrong, we'll automatically reverse it. That kind of safety guarantee is missing from something like Chaos Monkey. Thinking about it more, you actually have a different set of incentives than the cloud providers because you would theoretically want to build failure injection systems for iOS, Kafka, Linux, MySQL, Windows all of these different systems which may or may not be in the purview of a cloud provider yeah i mean everything fails and so in the end we want to ensure that all of our customer facing systems are resilient and that involves testing it at various layers what's the integration process for a customer that wants to onboard with gremlin yeah so uh installation wise you know we do common linux installation processes rpm debian we have a bash script you know, we use a, a public-private key similar to AWS, so everything's authenticated, and you're only granting access to the clients and the hosts that you expect to. We have the web UI. You know, we do single sign-on, so in general, someone can come in, sign up. Right now, we're in closed beta, and so you would email me and get a code, uh, or I would send you an invite link, and then you can log into the UI. You install Gremlin on the host you want to cause failure on, and then from the UI, you can create those attacks, you can manage them, you can halt them, you can see the history, things like that. You mentioned some 
liability that a cloud provider might have for breaking services as a service. Do you incur any legal risk yourself since this is the center of your business? It's a good question. Right now, certainly for our evaluation license, we have this little line in our legal document that says, <laughs> warranty, this software is built to break things. It might break things in an unexpected way. We're not responsible for that. That being said, you know, I've kind of outlined a few of the things we do for safety's sake. I used to joke at Amazon and at Netflix. So a little backstory at Amazon, we also built a, a failure injection service. Uh, it actually came out about the same time as Chaos Monkey, but because it's Amazon, you know, we didn't speak publicly about it. Um, but I always joked, I never want to be part of a Sev1 incident call where my tool broke everything. And so, you know, trying to build in those guardrails and those safety steps to help people run this safely without without breaking everything is is key. You and I share the history of having worked at Amazon. I only worked there for eight months, and I was more of a spectator. I committed very little code. I'm not necessarily proud of that, but uh, you know, I enjoyed my time at Amazon. I I left of my own accord. You worked there for about four years, I think. Uh, and then you worked at Netflix for two and a half years. I'd love to talk a little bit about that. What was your experience at Amazon? So I, I enjoyed my time at Amazon, and I wouldn't trade it for anything. It yeah. taught me to be a better engineer. You know, I, I got to work on some great projects. I had some great teams and some great team members. So Amazon's a great place, especially, I think, for a younger engineer, because, you know, they really beat into you these principles. Basic training. Yeah, it's it's a little bit like it's a little bit like boot camp, um, and maybe that's why I refer to my time at Amazon as my four-year tour of duty. Because when my four years and a week were up and my stock vest was done, it was time to move on. <laughs> yeah, that's how I'm starting to feel when I look at these different companies. Like you can look at Facebook or Google or Amazon, and the thing about Amazon is that it is it is a regime. It is hard work, and it prepares you to be, like, to work for yourself. And I'm not sure if you could say the same thing about Google or Facebook, where you just have these lavish lunches and benefits and, and everything. Like, do you really want that out of a corporate job? <laughs> I mean, it's my own personal experience, but I look back on some of the hard times that I went through. So I spent a year and a half at Amazon managing the retail website latency program. And it was our job to make sure Amazon was faster than everyone else, to measure it, to make improvements across the company. Um, being a manager at Amazon was hard. Uh, I didn't enjoy it, uh, but it taught <laughs> me a lot and it forced me to grow. And now, especially as I look back as CEO of my own company, of all of the things I've had to do over the past year, that experience has been invaluable in preparing me for, for what lied ahead. I just interviewed Brad Stone yesterday. He wrote the book, The Everything Store, which is about Amazon. Uh, I don't know if you've read that. Have you read that book? I have not. Oh, it's awesome. I recommend that. But, um, you know, we were just talking about, like, what makes Amazon different. And, you know, after, I, you know, I've spent, I just spent eight months there, but I still think about this all the time. What do you think makes that company so different? I think Jeff is a, is a very smart individual and has great vision. I think that he's tapped into hiring, you know, smart people that want to work hard, that want to prove themselves. 
Um, we used to joke that you know most of the it's, it feels like most of Amazon is interns and and entry level engineers with just a few senior people around to guide them and keep them on track. Mm. And that ability to go there when you're young, when you're hungry, when they're a big name, when you want to make an impact, you know, you're really excited. People work really hard. And I, I think that's part of it. I think the other part of it is is the value system. Um, I actually think that the value systems at Amazon and Netflix are, are great. And there's a lot of their leadership principles that, that I identify with and that I want to be part of my company. You know, customer focus. You know, we care about our customers and our customers being successful more than anything else. Um, I think that's super important. Bias for action. You know, we like to get things done. Vocally self-critical. We're okay to say we screwed up and we're not perfect <laughs> and we can do better. Um, you know, some of those principles, I think, really help help frame things and set the context well. Between the... Amazon management principles and the Netflix culture slide share. Where's the difference? What's the difference in the value sets of the two companies? There, there's a lot of difference, um, and I think it's the it's the super set of the two that you find the the happy medium. So the things I love at Netflix, you know, freedom and responsibility. Very seldomly did I have people telling me what I needed to be doing. And when I came to people and I suggested, so, so one of the things when I came to Netflix, you know, I thought, Hey, cool. They've got failure testing down. You know, I'm just going to come be an engineer on, on the edge team and I'm not going to necessarily worry about that. Well, what I found was, you know, chaos monkey was being run all the time, but like latency monkey and some of the other monkeys weren't being run. And it's because they were causing too much impact. They were causing un unintended impact when those exercises were being run. So I had the opportunity to come in and build another failure injection system on top of Chaos Monkey, kind of the, the V2. And it does application layer failure testing. So you can kind of arbitrarily inject failure delay into your application and you can distribute it across the SOA. You can do neat things like scope it so that you're only going to break an individual request or an individual customer and then grow that scope so that in the end you're running for 100% of production traffic. But I tell that story because I wasn't on the chaos team when I built that. And when I first went to my managers and I was like, this is what we need to help us test Hystrix, which is a, a circuit breaker library, and to make sure that our fallbacks work and we gracefully degrade. Well, they kind of they kind of gave me this look like, you know, we've got the monkeys and what are you doing? But OK, let's let's see where this goes. And because they were willing to trust me and listen to me, even though they didn't necessarily agree with me, I had the opportunity to build this system. And it was very successful internally. Um, it, it helped us improve our service, the edge service reliability from three nines to four nines. It, it cut our operational burden year over year by 20 percent uh, both years I was there. And so it had a great outcome, but to be there, to get to that point, you have to trust your engineers. You have to give them freedom to, to think and to go try things and to fail and to see where it goes. Okay. I think, I think that's such a salient point because I'm thinking back to my time at Amazon, uh, and I reflect on this occasionally. Basically, what I did at Amazon, I didn't work at all on the work I was assigned. Instead, I worked on these side projects, and I tried to get a little bit of traction from other teams that might be able to support these side projects so I could spin up my own business idea at Amazon. And in retrospect, my execution was really bad. Like, 
it, it maybe it would have worked if like for example if I would have been doing my work that I was actually assigned in addition to the side projects uh and maybe if I was a little bit more uh diplomatic about how I engaged the other teams that I was trying to you know or other stakeholders that I was trying to get buy-in from but it was an interesting lesson in in diplomacy and it sounds like at Netflix when you were going off into teams that you didn't have a assigned purview into you were more successful what were the lessons you learned because i'm sure there's people out there listening who want to execute on some sort of thing that is outside of their assigned purview what are the tips for having the right bureaucratic lever pulling and diplomacy sure and and that's hard uh, I'll just say upfront, it's hard to get right. I think one thing I learned at Amazon from being a manager is you kind of learn what the other side of the coin is like. You learn the same as we learn in a lot of areas of life that no one really knows what they're doing and the rules are all kind of made up and they're all just kind of doing you know, what they think is best or what someone told them to do. And so once you understand that, you know, you're a little bit more comfortable going to a director or a VP or a manager of another team and just saying, hey, I want to sit down for 30 minutes and talk about what's going on here. And, you know, you go into that with, you know, with a diplomatic approach. You talk about their problems. How can I help solve your problems? How can I make your life easier? And if we can, if you can set up a mutually beneficial situation like that, people are often happy to participate. And especially once they start to see the value and you've kind of convinced them that the, the idea is sound, then they're willing to start investing some time and resources and start supporting you. Yeah, I completely agree with that because I think in retrospect, I took a very, I had internalized an adversarial relationship between me and the big corporation. I don't know where I got that narrative from, but that's not the reality. And that was a mistake to believe. And if you go into a situation where you're like, oh, I'm going to try to build something inside of this company and you know try to lever the things that have been built before me, but it's an adversarial thing, that's a complete mistake. If you look for the synergies and uh, try to make win-win stuff, you can get pretty far. Yeah, I'm, I'm reminded of a, a Pulp Fiction quote that's probably not appropriate here, but as No, it's engineers... definitely appropriate. Whatever it is, it's appropriate. <laughs> but, well, as engineers, like, we just, we have to be willing to set aside our pride sometimes. Um, that's something that I've, I've been able to see this past year being CEO. You know, I wrote a lot of code in the first year. I'm writing a lot less code now. And as I get away from the engineer in me, you know, I'm able to, I'm able to be, I keep my passion, but not get so irate or worked up about little details or pedantic things. And I think, you know, keeping your, it's, it's that keeping your eye on the prize, keeping that overall vision of, of what you're trying to accomplish so that you can stomach some of the, the bumps along the way and you can just kind of, you know, swallow some of the, the jabs or, or the unpleasantries. Dig into that a little bit more because I think people have internalized or some people have internalized, oh, you want the Steve Jobs mentality where you're uh, zooming in on every particular detail and every particular mistake that somebody makes. And if they make a mistake and they ship it, you know, you're going to bear down on them and make them stay up for five days until they get this thing exactly right and shipped out the door. Uh, it sounds like you're taking less of that approach, perhaps. 
Yeah, it's interesting because that makes me think of two things. On one hand, one thing I one one criticism I have of Netflix's culture is they're big on freedom and responsibility, but the responsibility side's a little lacking. It, it's the ultimate responsibility is that you you know you're asked to leave, but you know the in, the intermediate ways in which you hold someone responsible if they're having a difficult time or not making mistakes is a little less clear. You know, the, the flip side, the other side to that is, you know, in general, I want to treat, you know, I want to hire a team and work with engineers that I would trust, that I respect. I want to treat them the way I want to be treated, you know, and that may not work for everybody, but it, but my personality type is much more, I'm worried about all the little mistakes. You know, if I screw up, I'm going to take it hard because I'm my own biggest critic and I'm the one who's really going to feel bad and work hard to mitigate that. And so if someone's already, you know, if that's already the approach they take, going in and yelling at them or telling them that they need to work all night isn't going to solve your problem. In fact, you know, if someone's behind the ball and, and you tell them, hey, you need to work twice as much, you know, I think that's probably a net loss there. Um, I'm a fan of <laughs> working a reasonable amount of time and having downtime. I think that's, you know, work-life balance and, and the ability to, to decompress and relax and not get too caught up in things. Particularly if you're hiring people for a big corporation like Netflix, these are people who have options to go work at startups. And if they want to be a workaholic that that stays up five days in a row, they're going to be much better compensated for that sort of overwork at a startup where their impact is going to have a commensurate output in their salary. Would you agree with that? Um, in part, I think, you know, I think you can go to a startup and work hard and um, not make as much money as you make at a big company. I think that, you know, that's the, if you live in the Valley, Netflix and Google I should have said, I should, sorry, I should have said expected value. Expected value. Maybe that's a better way to put it. Maybe. I guess it's a gamble. I mean, you're right. It's a gamble. But, uh, you know, at it, 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 it Netflix, I mean, so at a place like Netflix, though, you can put in those five-day straight marathon sessions, and you're still going to have a fairly fixed upside. And I would suggest that if you're going to work like crazy, you should at least be working with a uncapped upside. Yeah. So I, so I agree with that in principle. You know, it's funny because that's a little bit the anti-fragile uh, principle is you want a bounded downside and an unbounded upside. You want to be in situations in general where the worst thing that happens, you know about it and you're okay with it. But the best thing that happens is either way better than the worst or, you know, could go to the moon. Um, startups feel like that sometimes, you know, when, when we started Gremlin, the downside was, hey, we might waste a year of our time, maybe two. You know, we might not we not we might not go anywhere we might not make any money you know but you know if things die we'll go back to you know we'll go back to netflix we'll go back to another company our lives won't be over but the upside is hey if this takes off if this goes somewhere you know then we get to be in at the ground level and you know hopefully that's worth it in the long run do you think engineers in general uh, underestimate the amount of uh bounded downside they have but and by that I mean, uh, I feel like if it were more internalized that, uh, look, as a software engineer, basically your uh, career is, is super durable, and the only world in which software engineers uh, can't get a job is some world that is almost unfathomable from our current state of being, so why not take maximal risk with your career? 
I mean, I think uh, – so I agree with that statement that you made uh, in general. Uh, it, I want to knock on wood after you say that because then, you know, <laughs> tech falls apart and, and we're in the middle of the next bubble and we look back on this article and we're just like, oh, man, why did we say that? Um, <laughs> but I do think that in terms of, uh, you know, understanding that risk proposition, you, you need to think about it. I, I hadn't – thought about it deeply i always think about it kind of in the short term it's like the if you're thinking calculus it's like a local minimum a local maximum but sometimes you don't step back and think about hey you know what's my five-year plan what's my 10-year plan what's the worst that could happen what's the best that could happen what risks am i willing to take along the way and what's the maybe what's the expected value over that entire framework that you've created yeah. And, you know, for, for people thinking about doing a startup or people that are, are interested, one, feel free to email me. I'm happy to, to share with you my pain and my joy. Yeah. But, you know, I think even if we don't make any money out of Gremlin, I've learned an immense amount from my time already. The things you learn being a CEO, the things, the things you don't want to learn, HR, benefits, hiring, recruiting. And you know, I think a lot of, a lot of engineers deal with recruiting, but, you know, all of these things that you'd learn about running a business, about selling to customers, about contract negotiation, about all these things, they, they, they give you more context, they make you more mature, they help you better understand not just our industry, but the world as a whole. And I think that, you know, that's, that's where the time is value spent. Uh, yeah, I can definitely agree with that. Uh, I, I want to talk a little bit more about failure injection and gremlin and so on. Uh, so since we're talking about some big companies, we talked about Netflix and Amazon. It sounds like they have failure testing uh, in some sense. What about people at Google and Facebook or maybe other big companies that you've talked to? How do they do this chaos testing? So I know that, that Google runs these large-scale disaster recovery tests. I think they're a little bit higher level than what we're really discussing here because they're more business continuity you know, how can people do work? Uh, how can you continue to operate as a business if you lose one of your areas? I know that from Chaos Community Day last year that they're working on some tooling similar to this uh, inside. Um, some ways to programmatically let people inject failures and better understand their services. Facebook uh, came to Chaos Community Day two years ago and they spoke a little bit, but I don't really know what they're doing there. Um, my impression is, is that, you know, they care a lot about reliability, uh, but I don't know that they're really, they've really embraced this failure testing approach. It, it, do you think that makes sense for a company like Facebook though? Because, uh, I can imagine like Facebook, okay. They're like, all right, the, our, the core thing that we battle test is you can log on to facebook.com. You can look at your newsfeed, basically maybe messenger, but a lot of these other things, the graceful degradation is kind of built into the fact that it's not super important. It's like, okay, um, you know, does the trending news, is the trending news server up? Uh, you know, can, can uh, you know, is the comment, if you make a comment, does that uh, appear quickly? I mean, maybe these things are less important. Well, so, and that's how we would like it to behave and that's how it should behave. That doesn't mean that's how it actually behaves. You know, what we find when we fail your test is that we have these assumptions about how the system's going to behave and how it's going to fail. And like most engineers with complex systems in our heads, we usually get it wrong. There are, there are subtleties, there are interactions that we didn't expect, there are knock-on effects. 
And so, you know, actually, so, so I think the heart of that question is, what's the cost of being wrong? So Facebook was down for about an hour last year, and it was estimated they lost $1.7 million in advertising revenue during that time. How many engineers and how many teams could be going out and proactively <laughs> failure testing for that price? You know, and I and I think you can extrapolate that to other industries. You know, I was at Amazon. Black Friday was the most important day. We had incidents on Black Fridays, and they were very expensive incidents, very expensive. And so, you know, in some regards, it's a little bit like buying insurance. You know, you want to go invest that time and those people and that energy to be prepared up front because you know once it's done it's done you're not getting that money back you're not getting back the the impact to your brand or your reputation and so you know if the dollars and cents add up which i think it definitely does for even most mid-size and smaller companies then you want to be doing this up front does chaos testing reduce the need for unit testing or functional testing can you shift some engineering resources from one of those testing roles to chaos testing? I think it's part of the same overall umbrella. Um, one of the things we did at Netflix is we had, first of all, we had our failure injection system as part of a set of continuous integration, continuous deployment tests. Um, quick, quick, quick story there. You know, we wanted to test what are our critical services? What are the services that cannot fail? And so we went in the device lab, we ran Netflix on Xboxes and PlayStations, real customer devices. We spun it up, but then we would whitelist the critical services and we would fail traffic to anything else. And we would go through this process. Can we log in? Can we pick a movie? Can we stream? Does it work? If that process failed, we knew we'd introduced a new critical dependency and we could go back and we could make a decision about that. So I think in terms of testing, sorry, do you want to... <laughs> Yo, well, I was going to say, what's uh, that's such an interesting point because I, I was at a, an Uber meetup one time and I was talking to these Uber distributed tracing guys and they were talking about, yeah, right now we're working on figuring out what the critical path is through our system. I was like, oh, okay. So talk more about that. Like, why is it important to understand the critical path in your system and why is that a hard problem? Yeah, so I mean, I'll just contrast it with what we did at, at Amazon, which was we had we all kind of knew what the most important services were, and we had a hand managed list. And if you caused a, a website outage and you weren't on the list, you got on the list. Um, you know what it meant to be on that list was higher scrutiny, higher scrutiny, making sure that you were doing things well. If there was ever a large scale event, we paged everyone from those teams or, or all of those on calls to join immediately to cut down time to resolution. And so, you know, and, and you could debate, I guess the purist in me doesn't like that you should treat critical services different than non-critical services. But again, that's that engineering pedanticness, so ignore it. Um, but you can better prepare your critical services to fail. You can give them more hardening, more work. And then you should test that all of the non-critical services can go away without causing a problem. And if you've done that, you've just simplified your architecture and what you need to keep in your head when things go wrong. All right. I know we're nearing the end of our time. Uh, oh, it's been really. It's, I know it's been a really interesting conversation. You should you should come back on again. Maybe when uh, when uh, Gremlin comes out of beta or or something else. You know, some other oh, event. That'd be but awesome. Really, really interesting conversation. I guess to close it off. Why this problem? I mean, you could work on so many other problems. Uh, you've got a lot of experience. I'm sure you have other ideas. Why does this problem of failure injection inspire you as uh, an engineer, as an entrepreneur? 
Yeah, that's that's a great question. I mean, the little kid in me loves that my business cards say breaking things on purpose. And I get to talk about, you know, we go out and we and we break things. That's just a lot of fun. I think, you know, in my time at Amazon and my time at Netflix, I was also a call leader or an incident commander. And so I joined every large-scale incident. And on one hand, it's kind of a rush. Um, when you are the person in charge of fixing Amazon.com, you know, possibly you've got some VPs or SVPs on the call listening. It's both high pressure, but it's high value. You know that you're providing a service that everyone at the company cares about because if the website's down, nobody's happy. And because that's so important, you know, I really, that, that really just drew me into resilience engineering and high availability. You know, I think it, it dovetails really well with, with the way software architecture is being done and the way that we're moving things out and distributing it. And so, you know, maybe in 10 years, it's kind of boring and it's just how we do things. But right now, it's really exciting. It's new and it provides a lot of value. Yeah. I think your point there about Amazon, just again, you're harkening back to our earlier conversation. I guess maybe adrenaline, the adrenaline of Amazon is part of the unique lock-in of working yeah. at that company. I think it factors in. <laughs> Colton, well, thank you for coming on Software Engineering Daily. I really enjoyed our conversation. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. 